0: Behold, the eyeglasses that fight crime.
1: Despise the man who cools your coffee thermos with his mind.
0: Admire the detective who asks a blind man for backup.
1: All this and more to expand your awareness and aware your expanseness. It's
0: extrasensory.
1: It's all in your head. It's this week's prognosticating Proust.
0: Avad! Tonic!
1: Welcome to The Parlor. I'm Jennifer.
0: And I'm Maxwell. Join us on the settee, quick like a bunny, dear guest. (laughs) We are going to immediately plunge straight into tonight's rabbit hole.
1: Yes! You may recall episode 5, where we covered the Philip experiment. It detailed a science-minded group of eight people that manifested with their combined consciousness, an entity that moved the group's table around, knocked on it to communicate with them, and more.
0: It was an experiment that was fully documented, even on film. And we hope that it left you wondering...
1: What else can consciousness do?
0: Tonight, dear guest, we are going to show you, as we select from the parlor bookshelf, The Reality of ESP by Russell Targ.
1: I knew it. I knew you'd say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Russell Targ's background is fascinatingly diverse. With a foundation in experimental physics and psychology, Targ became a pioneer in the development of the laser. He was a senior staff scientist and project manager for more than two decades at Lockheed Missiles and Space Company and at GTE Sylvania, where he specialized in laser communications and airborne laser systems for the detection of wind shear. He holds two NASA awards for inventions in lasers. But he may be best remembered for being the co-founder of the ESP Research Program at Stanford Research Institute in the early 1970s. This $20 million, 23-year program launched during the Cold War was supported by the CIA, NASA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, Army and Air Force Intelligence, and many other government agencies.
1: That's a lot of support for ESP.
0: (laughs) It is. Employing the Freedom of Information Act, Russell saw his work declassified in 2010. And in 2012, at the age of 78, he authored what he considers to be his last and most unapologetic book called The Reality of ESP. In his introduction, Targ has this to say. As a laser physicist with 40 years' experience in psychic research, I am convinced that most people can learn to move from their ordinary ego-based mindset to a much more interesting perspective, one that is not obstructed by conventional barriers of space and time. Eighth-century Buddhists understood this meditative skill as moving from conditioned awareness to spacious or naked awareness. Who would not want to try that?
1: In April of 1972, NASA took interest in the electronic ESP training console created and demonstrated by TARG. In the fall of that year, NASA's notable support led Russell and fellow laser physicist and theorist Dr. Hal Putoff to form a psychic research program at Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, California hereby referred to as SRI. And though all government agencies still outwardly scoff at, play down, and even deny the research and work performed within this program, what Targ put off and the team of psychics achieved in its 23-year existence is nothing short of astounding. It all began with a New York painter and psychic named Ingo Swan. In Russell's own words, Ingo came to Hal's attention in early 1972, before the SRI program. He had read published experiments in which Ingo was reliably able to raise and lower the temperature of solid state heat sensors in distant thermos bottles. Soon, Ingo and Hal carried out a remarkable psychic experiment Ingo was psychically able to remotely perturb the operation of an almost perfectly shielded superconducting magnetometer buried in a vault in the basement of the Varian Physics Building at Stanford University. Swan was able to increase and decrease the recorded sine waves of the superconducting magnet. Says Targ. No one at Stanford was amused, particularly not the graduate student whose thesis depended on the stability of the system, nor the Navy, who was paying for it. This incident gave rise to our first of many government inquiries into our activities, especially regarding our ability to see or perturb things at a distance, things that were supposed to be secret, hidden, or imperturbable.
0: (laughs) Russell and Hal began to investigate remote viewing in a way any physicist would, in controlled experiments.
1: With lasers.
0: (laughs) Go with what you know, right? (laughs) They put a laser in a box and asked Ingo to tell them whether it was on or off. They would ask him to describe pictures hidden in opaque envelopes or in a distant room. Ingo did these tasks excellently, but he found them to be boring he said many times that if they didn't give him something more interesting to do, he was going to go back to New York and resume his life as a painter. <laughs> if he wanted to see what was in an envelope, he said he could open it. If he wanted to see what was in the next room, he could simply open the door. I can focus my attention anywhere in the world, he told them. These experiments are a trivialization of my ability. So, Helen Russell developed a more challenging test for him. It involved a series of double-blind trials, in which Hal would travel to nine different, completely random sites in Palo Alto, undisclosed to Ingo and Hal. And Ingo would describe, through his mind's eye, the type of environment Hal found himself. It was also around this time that Pat Price, a retired police commissioner and lifetime psychic, also joined the team. The data from Ingo and Pat's Where's Hal? trials were sent to an independent third party for analysis. This consisted of a randomized list of Hal's nine destinations and a randomized list of the psychic's nine descriptions. The investigator would travel to each location, see if any of the psychic's descriptions seemed to portray the site, and then grade the descriptions on its accuracy of the tale. One for perfect, nine for way off. The results were always staggering. Seven or more number ones per trial were the average, meaning that the statistical odds of the psychics merely having a lucky guess were one in 100,000. Before long, Hal and Russell were given an opportunity to brief high-level CIA intelligence officials about the Where's Hal experiments. During the meeting, Hal and Russell were surprised to see how many CIA men stood up to describe psychic intuitions that had come to them over the years or to their psychic grandmothers. (laughs) Some had stories of occurrences of ESP in the field that had saved their lives. The consensus among the operations-oriented listeners at the CIA was that the ESP team was wasting its time viewing churches and swimming pools in Palo Alto when it could be looking at Soviet sites of operational interest.
1: Ultimately, the CIA was interested, but they required what they called a demonstration of ability trial. This was a free test for the CIA to determine whether they would be having any further conversations with the ESP team. This gave the team the opportunity to take their research to another level, much to the elation of Ingo Swan, to meet the requirements of looking for sites of operational interest. Hal and Russell proposed Project Scanate, which was based on Ingo's belief that he could describe any distant location given only its coordinates, no maps permitted. Wow. To kick off the trial, Hal asked a friend at the CIA to give him some geographical coordinates of something interesting that Ingo might view remotely. The agent provided latitude and longitude coordinates over the phone to Hal, who had no idea what they were related to. Target in hand, Hal and Ingo settled in, and Hal recited the coordinate numbers. Ingo closed his eyes and began to describe what he visualized. There seems to be some sort of mounds or rolling earth, he said. There is a city to the north. I can see taller buildings and some smog. This seems to be a strange place, somewhat like the lawns you would find around a military base. But I get the feeling that there are some old bunkers around. It may be a covered reservoir. There must be a flagpole, a highway nearby, and a river to the far east. There's something strange about this place, something underground, but I'm not sure. Ingo then drew a map. Hal sent the data to his CIA contact and waited. In the interim, the same coordinates were given to Pat Price.
0: It was Russell who received the CIA's call. Ingo's description couldn't have been further off. The coordinates received from the agent described the location of his vacation cabin, which he had built in the deep woods of Sugar Grove, Virginia. After being told, in no uncertain terms, that the ESP team had failed miserably at its demonstration of ability, Russell calmly responded, "It's too bad you feel that way, because Pat Price saw the exact same thing. In fact, Pat saw much more. During his remote viewing, Price described many elements similar to those of Ingo, and went on to say, It looks like an old missile site, big, roll-up steel doors cut into the hillside, well-concealed with large, 100-foot rooms underground, some kind of command center. The CIA decided to look into the matter, and discovered, a quarter-mile from the cabin, over a hill and down a dirt road, a super secret National Security Agency cryptographic site at the Navy's Sugar Grove facility. Not only was Swan's and Price's description correct in every detail, but even the distances, flagpole, underground bunkers, and directions on Ingo's map were correct. However, Pat's description of the base hadn't ended with a vision of a command center. His second sight took him deep into the confines of the base, where he read off several classified code words from labels on a folder on a desk and from a filing cabinet. Cue ball, eight ball, rack up, etc. He even saw the NSA's name for the facility, Haystack.
1: Wow.
0: (laughs) At the time, the ESP team had no idea if any of it was correct. But it was all confirmed when they received a visit from officers from both the CIA and a very unhappy NSA. (laughs) When the two CIA agents asked Pat how he had so accurately described the incorrect location, Price said, The more intent you are on hiding something, The more it shines like a beacon in psychic space, which undoubtedly caused a moment of very awkward silence. (laughs) But suffice to say, the ESP team got their funding from the CIA.
1: (laughs) So, who was this Pat Price guy? Mm -hmm. Russell describes Pat as an unexpected gift to the program at SRI. One day in June in 1973, Pat called Hal put off to say he had been following their research for some time. As the team had been working in secret, this should have been their first clue as to Pat's abilities. <laughs> <laughs> Pat felt that he had been doing the same kind of psychic work for years, successfully using remote visualization to catch crooks when he was the police commissioner in Burbank, California. He said he would sit with the dispatcher in the police station, and when he heard a crime reported, he would scan the city psychically and then immediately send a car to the spot where he saw a frightened man hiding. Wow. In Russell's experience, Price's psychic ability remains unprecedented, which was good for the team at SRI because Pat would have to pull a hat trick to mollify the top brass after his code word stunt. And oh, dear guest, he did. In July of 1974, Russell sat with Pat in their copper-screened, electrically-shielded room and gave him the slip of paper with the geographical coordinates that Russell had received from the CIA. Pat leaned back in his old oak desk chair, polished his gold-rimmed glasses, and put them on. I see better psychically with my glasses on, he would say. And after the laughter would end, you'd realize, oh, he wasn't kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Pat closed his eyes. After a few moments he began to describe his mental images. He said, "I'm in the sunshine, lying on top of a three-story building in some kind of R&D complex. The sun feels good." As he was physically lying there, he said, "Some kind of giant gantry crane just rolled over my body. It's going back and forth. This is the biggest damn crane I've ever seen." It runs on a track, and it has wheels on both sides of the building. It has four wheels on each side of the building. I have to draw this. With that, Pat asked for a ruler to make a scale drawing of the whole facility. With gas cylinders, buildings, rails, and pipes, he then made a detailed drawing of the gantry crane. After he completed his drawing, Pat and Russell went downstairs to meet with the waiting CIA agent to see what he thought of Pat's work. The agent unrolled a large 1974 satellite photo of a Soviet Siberian weapons factory at Semipalatinsk, taken two months earlier. While some parts of Pat's overall sketch were correct, others appeared not to be. Pat disagreed. He felt he had it right. As it turned out, Some of the things he drew in July of 1974 that weren't in the satellite photograph had indeed been changed in the two months since the May photo had been taken. Wow. Looking back on the moment, Russell reflects, The accuracy of Price's drawing is the sort of thing that I, as a physicist, would never have believed had I not seen him draw it myself. The CIA agent said, "'It looks like you're looking in the right place. Now can you tell us what they're doing in the building under the gantry crane? That's what we'd really like to know.'" The next day, Price and Targ went back to their Faraday cage. Pat began to focus his attention on the interior of the building that he had been psychically laying on the day before. He described a large interior room and said, "'There's a lot of activity. They're trying to make a giant steel sphere. It looks like they're going to be about 60 feet in diameter. They're making them out of gores and trying to weld them together. But it's not going well because the metal is so thick. He says that the gores look like sections of an orange peel. Russell explains what happened next. The Soviet weapons plant experiment was such a stunning success. We were personally invited to undergo a formal congressional investigation by the House (laughs) Committee of Intelligence Oversight to determine if there had been a breach in national security. Crazy. (laughs) Of course, no national security breach was found. And our research into psychic functioning was supported by the government for another 20 years. (laughs) Incidentally, the sphere that Pat Price saw turned out to be a containment vessel for a Soviet particle beam weapon to shoot down U.S. satellites that were taking pictures. Hmm. Its existence was not discovered until three years later in 1977, when the United States used just such satellites to probe the site again. Data confirmed that Price had the size of the sphere and the gores correct within 96% of the true value. Amazing! Even his technical detail of the welding problems were confirmed. Mm. Wow. Although the SRI group was happy to receive confirmation, Pat Price had unfortunately died in 1975, just one year after his remote viewings of the Soviet facility. Many, including Russell Targ, believe the circumstances of his death to be suspicious. But for the sake of time, we're going to let you investigate that detail for yourself, dear guest.
0: Don't go away. When we return, the ESP team is asked to assist with a kidnapping case. The victim, Patty Hurst. Then take everything you now understand about remote viewing and just throw it out the friggin' window <laughs> as Ingo Swan and Pat Price continue to blow your minds.
1: You're listening to Odd Tonic. Don't go off reading NSA code words in psychic space. <laughs> we'll return after our third eyes catch their second wind.
0: <sighs> okay. It's just us now, dear guest. How you doing? Are you comfy? (laughs) Jennifer and I just want you to know that we are so happy that you enjoy visiting us in the parlor.
1: We love sharing with you a heady dose of delight and goosebump riddled oddities. Come
0: for the goosebump riddles. Stay
1: for the tea. (laughs) So if you enjoy your visits too, please subscribe and never miss an invitation to the parlor. And write us a kind review on iTunes. It will light the torch for other oddlings to find us by. Don't have time to write a review? turn to the nearest weirdo in your life and ask them if they've listened to Odd Tonic yet. Help us get the word out.
0: Tell your odd friend, weird neighbor, strange sibling,
1: (laughs) bizarre bank teller or mostly normal Reiki coach that you totally have a crush on, about (laughs) Odd Tonic. Growing our oddling base helps keep the parlor doors open for visits.
0: And everybody needs a conversation starter in the elevator or during an awkward routine health exam. (laughs) So remember... Odd tonic.
1: Turn your head and cough.
0: Oh, odd tonic.
1: <laughs> now let's return for more extraordinary extrasensory escapades. Welcome back. So far, we've successfully spied on the Russians and their nightmarishly large gantry crane and remote viewed top secret code words to the chagrin of the NSA. Now let's return to Russell Targ's book, The Reality of ESP. And here, in Russell's words, how his team got embroiled in one of the biggest crime cases of the century.
0: On the night of Monday, February 4th, 1974, a group of American terrorists kidnapped 19-year-old newspaper heiress Patricia Hearst from her apartment near the University of California in Berkeley, where she was a student. The kidnappers identified themselves as the Symbionese Liberation Army. While the press was trying to find Symbia on the map, (laughs) the Berkeley Police Department was trying to locate the daughter of one of the most prominent celebrities of the city of San Francisco, namely the publisher of the San Francisco Examiner and the president of the nationwide Hearst Syndicate of Newspapers. The Berkeley Police Department called the group at SRI to see if they could help with this most troubling of high-profile cases. I love this. This is like a crossover TV show.
1: (laughs) Get SRI on the phone. (laughs) And I love that, like, Pat Price is perfect for this. He's already a cop, and his brain has been completely fine-tuned for this.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. (laughs) Hal, Pat, and Russell drove north to Berkeley to find out what Pat could do to help them. The detectives had planned to ask a lot of questions. However, Pat stepped forward and asked the detectives if they had a mug book of local people who were recently out of prison. Yes, they did. Pat took the book and laid it flat on a wooden table so they could all see the pages. Pat turned the pages after looking carefully at each picture. Then, about ten pages into the book, out of hundreds of photos, he put his index finger on one of the pictures and said, He's the leader. The man he pointed to was Donald DeFries, who was indeed identified as the ringleader within the week. Pat said, they went that way, pointing north. He said, I see a white station wagon near a restaurant. It's across the highway from two large white gas storage tanks near an overpass. One of the detectives said, I know where that is. It's on the way to Vallejo, where I live. The detectives then dispatched a police cruiser, and within 10 minutes, it radioed back that they had found the kidnap car 15 miles north of them. The car still had cartridges rolling around on the floor, the same caliber of shells they saw earlier in the day on the bedroom floor of Hearst's Berkeley apartment. There was no doubt that they had found the right car. After that night, they had several additional opportunities to interact with the Berkeley detectives. Russell says, The most memorable of these was a trip to a potential SLA hideout. A detective and I were parked on a tree-covered hillside in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The detective asked me if I knew how to handle a gun. I thought this was a surprising request, but I told him I owned an automatic and knew how to use it. He then handed me his service weapon and said, cover my back. (laughs) Wow. He walked around the apparently abandoned house, and I covered him with the gun as he cased the building. I am sure that he had no idea that my corrected vision is 2200, (laughs) making me legally blind. After that incident, I realized that I was way beyond my cyclical researcher's job description. (laughs) I retired from the field feeling that my graduate studies at Columbia had never prepared me for this. (laughs) The team received a letter of thanks and a commendation from the Berkeley Police Department for their efforts during the days they had worked with them. But because each agency wanted sole credit for finding the heiress, the Berkeley Police Department, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI did not cooperate with one another ultimately rendering fruitless all the SRI groups' work
1: in the meantime while the team played cops and robbers and soviet spies mm. they also set up a pilot scanate project with ingo swan coordinates were supplied to them by other sri researchers and also by cia colleagues who were overseeing the investigations one early result came when hal read to ingo the coordinates of a location in mount hecla an active volcano in Iceland. As usual, Hale didn't know what the coordinates pertained, but within a few seconds of hearing them, Ingo expressed feelings of vertigo, sickness, and being cold, describing a sense of being at a great height above a fiery furnace. Ingo said, I'm over the ocean. I think there's a volcano in the southwest. He told them later, with serious displeasure, that they should never again put him in such a dangerous situation. (laughs) Later, the team unknowingly received coordinates for the French Kerguelen Island in the South Indian Ocean. Ingo's description of what he saw is as follows. My initial response is that it's an island, maybe a mountain sticking up through the cloud cover. There's something like a radar antenna, A round disk. There are some buildings very mathematically laid out. To the southwest, there's a small airstrip. It's very cold." He then started drawing a map. It correctly showed an island with many bays and inlets and a large mountain to the west, just where Ingo drew it. It took two years for the CIA to confirm that the airstrip also turned out to be just where Ingo put it. Incredible, right? But wait, we've been holding back on you. Super psychics Ingo and Pat also demonstrated remote viewing in other shocking ways. While doing earlier Where's Hal? trials, Pat Price had earned some easy scores of one by not only correctly describing the target's environment but by also providing correctly the precise names of the locations. But Price didn't stop there. During one trial, Hal and SRI Vice President Bart Cox had just headed for their car to drive to a random target. Pat and Russell were waiting in the lab for the prerequisite 30 minutes before beginning the remote viewing. Price turned to Russell and said, "We don't actually have to wait for them to get to their place. I can tell you right now where they're going to be. Then we can get some coffee. (laughs) Russell said that he could try that if he wanted to. And Price said, They've gone that way and pointed north, which was correct. They're standing on some kind of dock or marina. Lots of little boats. Some have their masses stepped and their sails furled. I can smell the sea air. An hour later, we were all standing at the selected target, on a dock observing just what Price had precognitively described. One Monday afternoon in 1975, Ingo was told by two CIA agents, we would like to know what's going to happen at these geographical coordinates this coming Thursday. Russell watched Ingo as he sketched his psychic view with colored pencils showing a line of trucks in the distance and a hemispheric pyrotechnic display of a failed bomb test. The conflagration he drew was the result of uranium burning in the air not a mushroom cloud his precognition proved correct the following friday the team received confirmation of a failed chinese atomic bomb test at the precise location three days after ingo's detailed and correct rendering of the scene
0: three days into the future
1: that's stunning wow
0: now back to pat And yet another trial that we've been humorously calling Where's Hal? But (laughs) the SRI team just referred to them as formal studies. (laughs) In this trial, Hal had traveled to a swimming pool complex, Rinconada Park, in Palo Alto, a location, again, unknown to Russell and Pat. As usual, Pat polished his glasses, leaned back in his chair, and closed his eyes. Price then proceeded to describe a circular pool of water about 100 feet in diameter. The large pool at Ricanada Park is actually 110 feet in diameter. Mm. He also saw a smaller rectangular pool about 60 by 80 feet on a side. The second pool happens to be 75 by 100 feet. He went on to describe a concrete block building which corresponded to the cinder block locker room. Price then drew up a map of the site. Russell states that remarkable accuracy was one of the hallmarks of Pat's work. However, this illustration showed one of the problems of remote viewing. Having described the target site with great physical accuracy, Price then said he thought the target seemed to be a water purification plant. He went on to draw some non-existent water storage tanks and put rotating machinery into his drawing of one of the pools. (laughs) Hence, in spite of Pat's technical precision, it appeared that he had mistaken the overall nature of the site, given that it was, in fact, just a public swimming park and not a water plant. That was the way Russell understood the situation, for 20 years. However, on March 16, 1994, he received the annual report of the city of Palo Alto, celebrating its centennial year. On page 22 of the report, Targ was stunned to read that, quote, In 1913, a new municipal waterworks was built on the site of the present Reconata Park. A vintage photograph from that era featured two water tanks, exactly where Price had drawn them. The Reconata Swimming Park had replaced the water treatment plant in 1922.
1: That's what I was swimming in? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's remarkable.
0: (laughs) For years, it had been assumed that Price had simply made up an erroneous water purification plant and water tanks. In reality, he had looked 60 years back in time and told the team what had been there before the swimming pool complex was built.
1: Ah, that's so crazy.
0: This amazing result demonstrated the ability of the non-local mind not only to travel through the three-dimensional world, but also to penetrate the barriers into the fourth dimension, time. It also taught Russell the lesson that in remote viewing targeting, one must specify not only the target location to be observed, but the time frame as well.
1: Wow, good tip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> During the Scanate phase of the research in 1973, the team wanted to explore the limits of remote viewing, since it appeared that there weren't any terrestrial boundaries. That desire to explore the limits was the inspiration for Ingo's proposal to explore the planet Jupiter. <laughs> wow. The purposes of this experiment were, one, to try to ascertain if long-distance remote sensing could extend to a very far distance, two, to record the time it took before impressions began to be given, and three, to compare the impressions with published scientific feedback. NASA had just launched the Pioneer 10 spacecraft, with Pioneer 11 to launch the following year. Both were planning flybys of Jupiter, followed by Voyagers 1 and 2 in 1979. And so, Ingo took flight, going where no documented remote-viewing session had gone before. (laughs) In addition to beautiful rolling, swirling gas clouds, Ingo also described this. Very high in the atmosphere, there are crystals. They glitter. Maybe the stripes are like bands of crystals, maybe like rings of Saturn, though not far out like that, very close within the atmosphere. Then, he drew a sketch of Jupiter and its band of crystals, forming a complete ring around the planet. Conventional scientific wisdom held that Jupiter did not possess any rings. However, the existence of its ring was discovered and confirmed in early 1979 by the Voyager One spacecraft, six years after Ingo's Jupiter probe had taken place.
0: Wow. That's just <laughs> unbelievable.
1: Isn't it just mind blowing? Mm. Uh, dear guest, these stories are maybe. Only a third of those that await you in Russell Targ's The Reality of ESP, true stories of the existence of extrasensory perception as documented by scientists and government agencies.
0: And we wish we could keep going. Yeah. It breaks our hearts that we haven't the time to describe how the SRI team brought in Hella Hammett, yes. a Life magazine photographer with zero experience with psychic phenomena, who spectacularly spectacularly demonstrated that everyone has the capacity to unlock their personal power of ESP.
1: Or how Russell later formed a company that made $120,000 predicting the silver market. (laughs) You'll just have to read the book for yourself. You can find the link in the show notes.
0: To wrap up, we want to close on some thoughts that Russell shares in his book. Mm. He says, Indeed, the experimental evidence for ESP from a century of research is so strong and overwhelming that reasonable people simply should no longer doubt its reality.
1: Mm.
0: For me, questioning reality and the exploration of psychic abilities is the essential next step in the greatest opportunity we have as a species, the evolution of consciousness. I believe we have completed our physical growth. Our brains are big enough. I am proposing that transcending our own species is the next evolutionary step for us to take. We started first as animals looking for food. Then we advanced to moderately self-aware humans trying to understand nature. And now we are finally ready to meet our destiny as beings aware of our spacious and non-local consciousness, transcending space and time and accepting the gift of psychic abilities. The suffering, war, and confused search for meaning we are experiencing as a species are all manifestations of our inner selves sensing, but not quite grasping, our true nature. Our hardware is fine. It's our awareness of our psychic software that must be upgraded. And quickly, given the critical state of affairs... When we accomplish that, we will realize that, in consciousness, we are all one. That realization will make our stirrings of compassion feel much more natural than waging war and stealing from the poor. Hmm. And dear guest, if Russell Targ's name has been ringing a bell with you, it was his TEDx talk that was canceled by TED in 2013 for being too controversial. Remember that? Mm. And to that, we offer this quote from Robert Oppenheimer. There is no place for dogma in science. The scientist is free to ask any question, to seek any evidence, to correct any error. Where science has been used in the past to erect new dogmatism, that dogmatism has found itself incompatible with the progress of science. And in the end, the dogma has yielded, or science and freedom have perished together.
1: I'm really glad that we've included these quotes because they're just so powerful. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this before. I just, I love examples of how extraordinary the world can be when you examine the mysteries of consciousness. I mean, without these examinations, life can just seem so flat and meaningless and And that really makes me anxious. But when you open the door to these greater ideas of consciousness and how it all ties together, it just feels right to me. And it feels like solid answers or at least solid markers that are pointing in the right direction. And that makes everything really feel certain.
0: I completely agree. And dear guest, exploring the boundaries of ESP is super easy Mm. if you have an iPhone or iPad. Russell converted his famous ESP training program, the same one that got NASA all excited <laughs> in the 1970s, into a free app called, appropriately, ESP Trainer. Unfortunately, it is not available for Android. Uh, but that hasn't stopped someone from making a knockoff app called ESP Trainer. that uh. even goes as far as replicating Russell's own app icon. The app gets a low rating, and it doesn't even mention Russell Targ, so beware
1: don't even try that one
0: (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) that wraps up this edition of odd tonic we hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode and are ready to unlock your Psychic abilities.
1: <laughs> Be sure to explore the show notes to see many drawings made by the psychics described tonight, and compare them to the photos of the actual targets. Yeah, it's fascinating,
0: completely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself craving more odd during the week, join our group on Facebook. Visit our Facebook page at Odd Tonic Society and click the big blue button, or click the group tab.
1: We'll be back next week with more weird history, strange science, and paranormal ponderings.
0: This, dear guest, is goodbye for now. But remember if you're ever on a crime spree, and no matter where you try to hide, there's always a cop there to find you, until you're certain that someone, somewhere, can always see you glowing like a beacon. In the psychic realm,
1: don't worry. It's just us.
0: Good night.